Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today's guest is Jim Howell, an author, world traveler, rancher, and holistic management practitioner from Boulder, Colorado. From his experience working with and managing ranches around the world, he's gained a wealth of knowledge that I'm really looking forward to tapping into. Thanks for joining me today, Jim, and welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Yeah, you bet, Jared. Good to be here. Well, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to just hear a little bit of your your history, your background in ranching, and, and maybe kind of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, very good. Well, um, my, uh, my, my dad's family were Colorado pioneers. My, my granddad's side were pioneers on the western side of the state. And my grandma's side were pioneers over in the Boulder area. In the 1860s through the 1890s, <clears throat> my grandmother married my granddad over in western Colorado, and my dad was born there. My dad was an only child, though, and uh, my granddad, who had put together uh, a ranch near in the area of Montrose and Cimarron, um, <clears throat> He was uh, he was kind of a slave driver and worked my dad's butt off from the time he was about seven till he got out of um, <laughs> out of high school, and so my dad was not romanced into the ranching way of life. And um, my dad became a he, he left the ranch and went to CU uh, University of Colorado, played football, ended up getting a teaching and and uh, or going into teaching and coaching in high school athletics, and uh, he got a job in Southern California in 1960 in Long Beach, California. So he moved out there to a completely different world. And my brothers and I met my mom and my brother who was from Southern California. And my brothers and I were all born out there. But um, by the time we all came along, he realized that his family actually had a pretty special thing in the mountains of Western Colorado. And by that time, my granddad had sold his lower elevation irrigated property and his cows, but he kept all his summer country, thank God. And so my brothers and I'd go back and, well, the whole family really went back and work, work with my granddad all summer. At, at that point, we were leasing our ranch to other guys and on kind of a full care deal, we'd take care of the cattle, do all the fencing, do, the, do a little bit of irrigating. We had a pie up there. And, and uh, so I grew up totally enamored with, with the mountains and ranching and horses and cattle and wildlife. And I uh, didn't think I could make a living ranching, though. So my goal was to become a livestock veterinarian and ranch as a hobby. And uh, when I was in college, I became kind of conscious, though, that the way that my family had managed those landscapes for since the 30s, uh, we were kind of going backwards ecologically. And I, I kind of gradually realized I was I was more interested in the in the in the plants and the ecology and just an ecological base that had a high level of integrity. And and uh, I didn't understand how we could change the management of our livestock to be compatible with that love of, of the land. And, uh, and again, was becoming conscious that our riparian areas were going backwards. Our, our high meadow parks were going backwards in terms of species diversity and productivity. And, and, um, if you don't mind me asking, like how, having known nothing different, how did you recognize that that was happening? That's a good question. I, I, uh, a big part of it was, this park we had up on our high place that um, the corner, the south, it was the southeastern corner of our property, and it jutted out into the middle of this big alpine park or meadow. And 
the other side of our fence line was a, it was BLM and it was a sheep permit. And, and the, the species diversity and the vigor of the native bunch grasses and the, and the lack of sagebrush on that side of the fence is completely different than our side of the fence. Um, so our side of the fence had way more density of sagebrush. It was dominated by dandelions and Kentucky bluegrass. And so plants that are very resistant to continuous grazing. But the other side of the fence is sheep permit. That guy would usually come in there with a big mob of sheep and um, and kind of late September, early October. Um, so after, you know, post-growing season and and uh, graze it hard for sure. Um, but then he wouldn't be there till the next fall. And I didn't really I didn't understand the concept of time or timing or or anything. I didn't understand that overgrazing was a function of time at all. And uh, so we had a handful of cows continuously grazing on our side of the fence and this big mob of sheep that had come in and graze the other side of the fence. And the, and the result ecologically was totally different. But I didn't piece, I didn't really understand the dynamics there and what was what was really different, even though it's obvious, completely obvious now. But at that time, it wasn't super clear. And uh, and so I almost changed my when I was in college, I almost changed my major to ecology or biology from animal science and kind of went down that path. But luckily the summer before I was going to do that, I came across uh, Savory's book in a bookstore in Gunnison, Colorado, just totally by chance. And the previous year I'd started reading a few, a few kind of more progressive articles about more progressive grazing management. And I recognized the name Savory because I'd heard about the Savory grazing method a little bit, but was like barely I, w- I didn't know who Savory was or what his background was or anything. Um, but that when I saw that book on that bookshelf, it said holistic, Ma- holistic resource management, Alan Savory. And I recognized Savory, but I did not recognize the word holistic. I'd never heard that word before. And um, I picked it up, started summing through it, immediately knew this book was probably going to change my life. And uh, so that, so I didn't change my major. I stayed in animal science, but I, I changed my focus from, kind of the pre-veterinary track to rant to kind of range science and grassland management and had the opportunity to go to uh, New Zealand as an exchange student when I was a senior. And so I went to Lincoln University on the South Island, um, learned a lot of great stuff there and a uh, super practical program <clears throat> and learned more about kind of farm and ranch management than I did probably grass management there, although I learned a lot about that too. And I met my wife there, who's actually from Argentina. She was doing her master's degree there at that same university. And um, and I eventually talked her into marrying me after about three years of a long-distance relationship. And uh, when we decided to get married, we, we said, what would we, if we could pick anything in the world to do, what would it be? And I'd become, you know, a big fanatic of holistic management and savory, although I had no real experience in it by that point. Um, Daniela, my wife, her master's thesis was very kind of holistically oriented, even though, you know, in hindsight, we realized it was. And so I introduced her to Alan's work when we were in New Zealand together and it really resonated with her. So anyway, so when we decided to get married at that time, I was managing a grass-based, uh, dairy in East Texas, which was great, but I realized I didn't want to be a dairy farmer and I didn't want to live in East Texas. So, so we said, we'd like to work for savory and his group and whatever capacity they might be able to use us we'll do anything so this is in the days before email or internet so we we wrote an actual letter put it in an envelope <laughs> mailed it to him 
along with our resumes. <laughs> and, uh, and lo and behold, like a week later, uh, Shannon Horst, who was then the executive director at, at what's now HMI, uh, gave, gave me a call and said, we think we might have the perfect job for you guys managing a ranch in New Mexico, in southwestern New Mexico. And, uh, and which is down in the Chihuahua Desert. The ranch ended up, it's right on the Arizona, New Mexico line, a little ways north of the Mexico border. And uh, so we ended up getting that job and, and moving there. That ranch was owned by an absentee owner from Tennessee, and he hired Alan's group to, to manage the ranch. And then we got hired as on-site managers as, you know, mid-20s mm-hmm. youngsters in 1994. And uh, so it's just crazy lucky that we got that opportunity at that stage in our life and, you know, got to know Alan and his wife, Jody yeah. really well. And uh, so that's how we kind of got on this path of ranching. Okay. And, and they were working, were they working alongside you, Alan Savory kind of, is this kind of where you really for the first time were able to implement some of these practices and learn and, and yeah. kind of alongside a mentor like Alan? Yeah, we, you know, I'd started doing a little, we did a, a pretty intensive rotational grazing approach at that grass-based area in East Texas, but it was on a, you know, only a 900 acre landscape and super productive country. So this was definitely the first time I tried to do any of this stuff in big, extensive, more brittle, harsher, tougher country. So that, that ranch was 35,000 acres and it had some big, great big flats that we would summer on. And then we wintered up in some really rugged mountains that were adjacent to those to those flats because we can only get cattle to climb those mountains in the winter because it was too hot in the summer to get them to climb and it was too far from water. So, so yeah, we got to work, yeah, directly with Alan and, and, and one guy that used to be one of the uh, HMI's consultants that would go out and help the on the ground people like my wife and I, a guy named Miles Keogh. And uh, so, yeah, we, we got to know Alan really well during that process and Jody, his wife, and ended up, you know, we're still connected, you know, at the hip with them in many ways. And uh, we did we did a lot of just various consulting work uh, for for HMI through the years, uh, teaching and consulting. And and uh, but for the most part, Danielle and I were on our own. We, we did that job for two years and then decided that the lease on my family's ranch where I'd spent all those summers as a kid was um, was expiring in uh, the, the fall of 96. And in 97, my wife and I decided, told my dad we'd like to come back and lease the ranch. And so so that's what we did in 97. Um, but we didn't own any cattle and 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 uh, didn't have any money, really. And so, you know, luckily I came across uh, it's a guy named Bob Kingsbury who used to have a publication called Controlled Grazing Times um, that was like kind of a started up uh kind of it was simultaneous to the stock and grass farmer or the stock and grass farmer got started way before that but kingsbury had this publication he was a close associate of Lori lassiter um uh, tom lassiter the Beck beef master breed foundation guy Lori lassiter was tom's son and was uh raising beef master cattle in west texas and so him and bob kingsbury were close associates and they wrote a book um, welcome to the new cattle industry. And Bob also had this had this controlled grazing times newsletter. Anyway, those guys made me realize that I didn't have to I didn't have to own cows or land to be a rancher, and I could do it with almost no capital. 
and, you know, I, I had it somewhat of a leg up because my, my family had this ranch in high elevation, Colorado. So I had a place to get started, but it really wasn't enough country to, to provide a full-time living. Um, and it was all seasonal because we were under snow from, you know, first, uh, first of November, mid November, all the way until, you know, late April, early May. And so we just custom grazed outside cattle for 17 years there and ended up leasing adjacent ranches. And, uh, so we had a, a reasonable op- size operation through the summer, um, eventually. And, uh, but still it was seasonal. So that freed Daniela and I up to do other things in the winter. Um, mm-hmm. so we started between leaving the high, that ranch in New Mexico, which is called the high lonesome and getting started in Colorado. We had a, we had like six months there where we, uh, through the winter. So we, we traveled all around. We decided to go on a trip through um, Southern Africa, visiting a bunch of guys that Alan put us in, in contact with, guys like Johann Zietzman and some of his old clients like Argo Rust and and some of these legendary dudes. And uh, so we went and visited a bunch of those guys in that and, and then traveled all over Eastern and Southern Africa. And the next year when we were in Colorado doing our custom grazing deal and we also had a, an outfitting business that we that we managed and ran in the fall. But during that summer, we're like, what are we going to do this winter when we ship all our cattle back to their owners? And we said it'd be awesome to take a group on a on a to visit all these awesome ranches that we visited in Africa last last year. So we decided to put together a tour to do that. And uh, long story, the first we learned a lot on that first one. We actually pulled it off, and. Uh, and uh, learned a lot how to restructure those and make them more affordable and less not, not as long. And uh, so any, anyway, we ended up doing that then for from like '97 to 2007 for like 10 years. That's what we did in the winter was take groups of people on on uh, ranch tours, mostly progressive ranchers that were kind of holistically inclined. Um, we would take to visit other holistically managed ranchers in other countries. So we ended up developing a really cool client base. Most of them are repeat customers. Eventually we end up going to multiple countries with them. So we, we added in Argentina in addition to Zimbabwe and Namibia and South Africa, which is where we used to go in, in Africa. Uh, we added Argentina and Australia to the mix. And so we did dozens of tours to all those countries through the years. And, um, a lot of that stuff is in my, you know, the, those experiences made it into my book and, uh, Jody Butterfield, Allen's wife, she gave me the opportunity to start writing for HMI's newsletter. Um, and I think it was in 2000. And so I did that for, for a long time. And, uh, a lot of the material that, that, that I wrote about was stuff that we were learning on those trips. And so it was really cool because we got to go back to the same places multiple times and kind of see their evolution through the years, which is way more valuable than just Mm -hmm. getting one snapshot of an operation. Sure. Yeah. And then, and then having to sit down and write about what I was learning and being forced to, because I had a deadline I had to meet with Jody every other month. Um, (laughs) It forced me to get all my thoughts, you know, down on paper effectively. Maybe talk about some of those things you learned, especially some of the ones that you saw as you progressively came back and saw their advancements and and then maybe how you applied some of those to your ranch back in Colorado. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty cool opportunity that you had to both see and experience these things at the same time that you're building your own kind of branch business and to be able to implement what you're practicing and see what works, what doesn't as you go. Yeah, totally. Well, <clears throat> you know, I would say that the, the, the biggest 
kind of epiphany that I had. This would have been like the early, late 90s, early 2000s, after kind of soon after we got going on that and starting to go to visit ranches in, in, um, in, in the tropical savanna, especially that were very brittle landscapes, but vastly more productive than the country that I was used to in the Western US. And maybe define what brittle means just for our listeners <laughs> yep. is, um, and what it means, I guess, in holistic management. Yeah, so we, we, we kind of define brittle environments as, as environments that have extended periods of the year where there's either you know, very little or no precipitation or very low atmospheric humidity, and therefore very little. There's you know, extended periods where there's no moisture at the soil surface level where biological decay can take place. So it's too dry for the microbes to survive, so the microbes go dormant. And as a result of that, biological decay totally stops. And in the tropics, it, it tends to be that that dry season is typically very defined. It's usually in the winter. It can be, you know, six to 10 months long, typically more like seven, seven, yeah, six, seven, eight months long is a dry season. It's almost guaranteed not to rain during that time. Um, and, but then when it starts raining, it starts raining like crazy. And, uh, and, you know, you can get 30, 30, 40 inches of rain over the course of a four or five month, you know, very concise growing season. And it's hot and humid. And so it's, you know, ideal growing conditions. And it's all C4 tropical grasses. So you just grow tons of feed over a very tight time period. But then all that feed completely goes dormant. And when it, you know, within a few weeks of it quitting, quitting of, of the rainy season stopping, then you have this enormous mass of material that you have to do something with between then and when it starts to rain again. Um, so that, so that, that's a, like a high production brutal environment. And, but most of my experience at that, by that point had been in New Mexico and in Western Colorado, which are also brittle environments, but they're, they're not savanna environments or steppe environments, which are more indicative of the, or more representative of of um, brutal environments in the more temperate latitudes. Um, <clears throat> they tend to be like a, a steppe is like a, you know, semi-desert low production can be grass dominated or shrub dominated. And um, <clears throat> as opposed to having super concise, very predictable rainy seasons and very predictable dormant seasons. So if you look at the average rainfall patterns in those environments over time, um, rain tends to come on average in little, little spurts Sometimes there's concentrations like the Northern Great Plains have a concentration of rain in the spring. But if you look at like average rainfall in, in Elko, Nevada, over the course of a whole year, little on average, there's little bits of precipitation every year. I mean, every month over the course of a year. But that almost never happens that way. You, you'll have a, a good year where you have a good spring or a good summer or maybe a heavy winter that enables some soil moisture to develop, but the erratic nature of how that precipitation comes is totally unpredictable. And even though it can rain about any time, it usually doesn't. <laughs> so it's usually dry and the soil surface is usually sure. is dry. So similar yeah. to the tropics, most of the time there's no sur- moisture at the soil surface level. So biological decay can't take place. So plant decomposition happens as a result of physical mm-hmm. weathering and, and, um, and chemical oxidation as opposed to biologically decaying in the absence of herbivory. So that's what Alan came, you know, realized in the fifties and sixties in very pristine areas of, of what's now Zambia and Zimbabwe um, in areas that were, that were, um, inter- that were, um, where there were still incredible herds of intact 
herbivores along with their associated pack hunting predators. These were in areas where um, that weren't hadn't been ever settled by pastoralists because of the tsetse fly, and um, so they were still pristine. And so Allen was the right guy in the right place in the 50s and 60s with this deep love of land and this incredible observational ability and understood that this dynamic of, of herbivory in these brittle environments is the way that biological decay, decay takes place. Where is the humidity and the warmth that's in the gut of the ruminant or the, of the grazing animal? So that's where even in the dry season, you can continue to have biological decay. And that, and that critical step of decay in the cycle of life of birth, growth, death, and decay, that decay step is achieved by the presence of the herbivore. So that's basically the dynamic, and uh, you know that's what a brittle environment is. It needs these herbivores. But I, but going back to my like epiphany that that the steppe environments of the West and Patagonia, Southern Argentina, and more temperate latitudes were these lower production environments versus the tropical latitudes where they're very high production environments. <clears throat> so that led to a whole bunch of uh, kind of soul searching and and thinking. Okay, what does this mean in terms of how I actually um, interact with this landscape with my cattle in terms of how I should graze it. Um, because most of Alan's, all of his original work was done in these higher rainfall environments, or most of it was. He did some stuff in, you know, Namibia and Botswana, but still most of that country was still, even though it wasn't as productive, it was still defined by very concise summer growing seasons, um, as opposed to the steppe environments, which again are more, a lot more erratic and unpredictable. Anyways, I realized there was a big difference between high and low production environments. And that, and I asked myself, yeah, the herbivore still needs to be present in these low production environments. But what does that mean in terms of how, long, how, many, how much time is too much rest? When do plants start to actually suffer from a, an excess of above ground biomass accumulation? In the, in the tropics, one year of accumulation is a liability to that plant unless you get it removed over the course of the dormant season. But then I started realizing that in these steppe environments, Multiple years of of, uh, of above ground biomass can actually be uh, an asset to the plant as opposed to a liability. And here you're talking about you know five inches of, of growth as opposed to you know five to seven feet of growth. And and in the and in the lower production environments, you know plant density tends to be greater. So the the the, the main way that you can keep the soil covered is by um, laying litter down on the soil surface, but you have to have a, a source of litter making material to, <laughs> to lay any litter down. And so I started realizing just through a mm-hmm. few kind of, uh, uh, mistakes really, or not really mistakes, but just, um, un- unintended experiments. <laughs> I started in, in areas where I'd been giving, um, more than one growing season of recovery to a specific pasture. And so say a full year off and then, and then coming back to it the, the next year um, with two years of accumulated biomass there. So last year's leaves, which, you know, obviously were yellow or gray by that next growing season, but one year of accumulation, again, does not stunt that plant. And so the current season's growth through that last year's accumulated biomass was actually, I noticed in the spring was more vigorous than on the plants that had been grazed the year before, even though those plants um, we're only grazed for one, you know, concise grazing period and had the, you know, that might've been three or four or five days. And then they had the whole rest of the season off. Those pastures weren't as vigorous as the pastures that it had been totally rested the year before. And that didn't like resonate with my holistic management ethic, which is you got to push stocking rate. Cattle have to be there. 
any accumulated forage is a bad thing because it overrests the grass plant. I started realizing that actually in these environments, that's not totally true. And uh, <clears throat> so, so yeah, that made, that really refined or changed the way that we started to manage our, our grazing in these, in these lower production environments. And uh, primarily trying to really do a good job of periodically, at least given that full year of recovery between grazing events um, on the ranch that mm-hmm. we, the main ranch that we leased for years, that was my deal with that guy was to graze every other year. So we'd graze, we'd graze, mm-hmm. um, we'd graze half the ranch every other year and we'd switch which half of the ranch we were grazing year to year. And we kind of grazed it in a mosaic. So not like the North half one year and the South half the next year we had, um, you know, we graze different pieces of different canyons and different parks and different riparian areas in different years and then switch it up the next year. So the stuff we were coming on to had, mm. had all that last year's growth. And, and then I realized that with that last year's accumulated growth there, that becomes your litter making source, your litter making material. Because as the cow goes in and tries to meet its nutritional mm. needs, obviously it's going to try to select for the current season's growth, the highest quality stuff. In the process, that standing biomass from the year before a lot of she consumes a lot of that too but a lot of that in the process of her you know moving her muzzle through that grass plant knocks a lot of it over to the onto the soil surface it's it's more brittle because it's a year old so it breaks easier when she steps on it it breaks easier easier it's it's not Mm -hmm. you know nimble and flexible like a current leaf current season's leaf so that's the way you build litter is by having these extended recovery periods in these environments that um that the return of the herbivore is totally necessary, but the interval of return is a lot different in these low production versus high production environments. And that's probably so counterintuitive to so many people to leave grass. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I can imagine we're in, I, I'm in Southeast Minnesota where we're moving across our land a couple times a year and the idea of leaving grass for a whole year. I, and, and I imagine even out in that area, the idea of leaving all of that forage is just yeah. almost hard to swallow, you know. It is, you know, especially when you're, um, you know, we're all kind of economically, uh, it's a massive driver of what we do every day. We all have to make a living and the, the way sure. that you can make a living in ranching, the only way you can really be optimally profitable in ranching is if you're, if you're, you know, coming as close to matching your stocking rate with your carrying capacity as possible and, uh, and utilizing your grass. Um, but but in these in these environments, though, you, you know, if you if you're absolutely eating every stick of grass across your brittle, low production brittle ranch every year, um, in my experience, and 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 based on the monitoring we were doing, that's the other thing is our biological monitoring transects were telling us that we weren't we weren't necessarily going backwards, but we weren't getting any better in terms of plant density and litter cover, and plant diversity. But when we started going to those every other year recovery period or every other year grazing events everything started to improve uh, big time. So I started, I said, you know, when I kind of started initially to have that realization, I got really interested in the, you know, what it, what did nature's model look like on these lower production environment in these lower production brittle landscapes in terms of the dynamics of the wild herbivores out there relative to tropical Savannah, Africa. And so I started doing a lot of research into that and just doing a lot of reading on my own and and gradually realized, um, you know, where these environments had been studied or observed at all. You know, most of them, most, by the time we started paying attention to those migratory dynamics in these lower production environments, we'd, we'd largely, you know, decimated the populations that were out there, especially in the Western U.S. Um, but there's still spots, there, there's anecdotal accounts of kind of early folks into 
Western North America. And then there's still a handful of places in the world where they're in these step environments where these migratory dynamics still happen. And including like the Eastern Mongolia with the Mongolian gazelle and up on the Tibetan plateau with the Chiru or the Tibetan antelope. And then there's, you know, a lot of study done on the wildebeest in the Serengeti, which is tropical Africa, but where the um, the Southern Serengeti is actually quite dry country. It's only like 16 inch rainfall country. So I, I kind of thought that maybe if I could glean something from those observations of the wildebeest, it would be applicable to, you know, Western North America. So I started, and after piecing all that together, you realize that actually the migratory patterns of these, of these big herds are quite variable year to year um, in terms of the migration route that they take, how heavily they graze certain areas um, from year to year. The only things that are really predictable are where they, are where they go to calve. And, but where they concentrate in the calving or the fawning areas year to year actually are switched up. Again, the migratory route they take is different. The, the, the date that they take off in their migration is different somewhat year to year. Where it actually rains and where the green patches are is different year to year. So that influences where they concentrate. So I realized it's just like the way that these migratory grazers interacted in these low production, brittle, erratic rainfall environments was also, you know, hugely kind of uh, chaotic year to year. And so... Mm-hmm. The timing of grazing, the, the, the intensity of grazing, and the recovery period in between grazing events was all highly variable year to year in these environments. So that's when I started realizing actually that two-year recovery period, that was probably, that probably mm-hmm. happened quite often in these environments. I'm just curious, logistically, uh, in these spaces, how are you managing keeping, well, are there certain tools, practices you're using to keep track of what areas had certain management type, and how are you managing cattle across these vast spaces dealing with the certain terrains you're working with. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I don't know, just any tips for logistics of what you're talking about in your environment? Well, um, I'll talk a little bit about our our ranches there in in Colorado. So we had about 10,000 acres, so not a huge amount of country where we were, um, where I was really kind of working with all this stuff. Um, But it was, it was rugged country, you know, all incised by canyons that weren't super deep, but you know, four to 500 feet of elevation difference between the creek and the top of the ridge. <clears throat> and so, you know, under traditional management on those high elevation ranches in Western Colorado, guys just turn their cattle out in, you know, mid to late June, they, they spread up and down all the creeks along all the riparian areas. They continuously graze all the creeks and, you know, rightfully so the, the, the reputation that cattle have, for damaging riparian areas is valid because when they just are not controlled at all, they, they do cause significant amount of riparian damage. And, um, and then they don't climb the slopes. Um, so they might climb a third of the way up the slope and kind of partially graze and over, you know, overgraze continuously the same plants on those slopes. And then above like a third of the way up the slope, they don't touch at all. And by that time you're getting into timber, depending on the aspect, different communities, vegetation communities, but, so I started fencing cross sections of those canyons just with portable hot wires. I'd have a wire running down a ridge, just a portable wire weaving through the trees down each ridge. And then I'd fence a cross section. And so I'd have a herd of, say, 400 cows that would have access to a few hundred yards of the creek at any given time. And I usually would try to fence those into like three-day grazing periods. So on a the day one of a three-day grazing period, the cattle would move on to that fresh stretch of creek and, and canyon, and they would graze the riparian area for the first 
half day to a day. But then on day two, if they wanted to fill their bellies, they had to start climbing. And and those cows figured that out that if they had to learn to make a living, they had to they had to work and and they just started doing it, no problem. And they and they by the end of day two, there'd be cattle right at the top of the ridge. And by end of day three, they will have covered that that whole cross section of canyon. And and so that enabled us to, you know, if that that ranch, which almost had no flat ground on it, we were running 400 cows there where the, the previous lessee, when I was a little kid on there, was only running 150 cows. And uh, the reason we could do that is because we we opened up all those two-thirds of the ranch that were up on those slopes that our cattle could access. So we effectively, mm-hmm. you know, increased the size of the ranch by two and a half times by just by the manipulation of stock density, all with portable hot wires, no no permanent fence whatsoever. So... So that, those are the tools we use there. And, um, and then, you know, with, with my, my current iteration of my career, which is my grasslands business, managing ranches for other owners in the Northern Great Plains and New Zealand, various places, um, you know, it's a mix of existing permanent fence and lots of portable fence up in the Northern Great Plains. It was all, all we didn't build any new fence up there. And those, you know, we had about 100,000 acres under management up there and it was hmm. just all string and poly wire across the plains. <laughs> Well, we'll talk about that in a bit. Maybe yeah. get into the Grasslands LLC now. Talk about what that is before we, we get into man- all of the different aspects of the things you're managing across all those different environments. What is Grasslands LLC? Um, well, we, we conceived it along with um, Alan and his wife and Jody and, and a few other partners in um, the summer of 2009. And uh, there was kind of a, a, a shakeup within HMI and we long story but we ended up forming an, a parallel entity that we ended up calling the savory institute initially grasslands and savory institute was all going to be under the same umbrella but we realized once we got going with that that we had multiple enterprises one of which was this ranch management enterprise that we wanted to develop we wanted to go out and try to raise investor capital to buy ranches that i would go out and identify and, and deem to be commercially viable and build a pitch around them and present them to investors and try to talk them into buying them. Simultaneously, we had a big, you know, we wanted to do a big kind of education and outreach and consulting enterprise. And so that's what, that side of it is what became the Savory Institute. And that ended up becoming a nonprofit. And then Grasslands was split off as a, as the for-profit ranch company. So we got started with that in 2000. We conceived in 2009, got it like formed and going in early 2010. I went back and did my first pitch to, uh, some investors in in uh, New York in January of 2010, and they said they said they wanted to do it. And <laughs> I pitched I pitched two projects, one in South Dakota and one in New Zealand. So I had a consulting client in New Zealand that I'd done a lot of work with, and I'd become aware of some good opportunities in New Zealand. And uh, so I pitched that, and then I'd found this country that I determined was by far the most undervalued ranch real estate in the in North America in Western South Dakota. So I pitched that also. And um, I really wanted them to bite on the New Zealand project because my whole family, we wanted, we were ready to potentially relocate to New Zealand at that point. Um, but uh, they, said, sure. they said, we want to do the South Dakota project. <laughs> so that's where, so that's where we got started. And we actually, we got those, I pitched two ranches uh, near, uh, Belfouche and Newell area north of the Black Hills ways. And uh, we ended up getting those ranches bought in the spring of 2010. And, um, and then so our kind of our inertia was in the Northern Great Plains at that point. And so 
that those that was about fourteen thousand acres that we bought there in in, in South Dakota. And then the, a year later, we bought um, about a, a thirty-nine thousand acre ranch near Broadus, Montana, which is right in the southeastern extreme of the state. And then the following year, we we bought a ranch up near uh, between Miles City and Jordan, Montana, about a fifty-three thousand acre place. And uh, so, so we got that Northern Great Plains division going, and and all that was going, you know, reasonably well, all things considered. But then all that country's it, it's like it got discovered soon after we got going there in terms of, uh, in terms of its undervalued nature. <laughs> and suddenly we didn't feel like it was undervalued anymore after several years. Our, our investors, especially, <laughs> sure. so this was like right after the you know financial crisis of 2008 and nine. So we got this first ranches bought in 2010. Mm-hmm. There really wasn't a, an established new market yet for ranch real estate because there've been so few transactions in the previous few years. So nobody really knew what land was worth up there at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as, as the recovery from the financial crisis uh, got going and people were looking for places to stash money, people became aware of the undervalued nature of that country. And so, so anyways, we, we, we quit buying ranches up there and we said, well, let's look back to New Zealand and see, see if there's some opportunities to circle back to down there. And so, so that's what we did. And, um, we had a new investor kind of under our wing by that point who wanted us to put together some country for him. And he was interested in anything anywhere in the world. <clears throat> so I went down to look at several properties in New Zealand. This was actually still when we were lo- looking in Northern Great Plains. This would have been late 2011. I had several opportunities to go look at. When I landed in Christchurch and the real estate agent came and picked me up, he said, in case your investor might be interested in this bigger property, we've got this this one just is coming on the market and he showed me some of the, you know, initial promotional materials they'd put together. I was like, yeah, holy cow, we need to go look at that place. And so we went out and, and drove into this, drove into this place called Lee's Valley that I didn't even know existed, even though I, I went to school for a year, not very far from there, but it's, it's hard, kind of hard to get to. You have to go up this sinuous, crazy Canyon up this gorge. And then it emerges into this Valley called Lee's Valley. And, and we, we anyway, we end up we descended down into that valley and met the owner there, and and I realized that the property that was for sale took in the the entire basin there from rim to rim all the way around the whole thing. There's there's four rivers that basically emerge on that place that merge at the bottom point of that property, and so you you know effectively have control of entire multiple like four entire water catchments um, <clears throat> that are all part of one bigger water catchment, and so. So anyways, I said, somehow we got to get this place bought. And it took us two years, but in September of 2013, we got that place bought with this new investor. And in 2014, we, with that same investor, uh, we expanded on a, a 31,000 acre place in, um, in Peninsula, Florida, um, which is yet another, another totally different ranching environment that comes with huge challenges. And uh, yeah, and, and we also kind of through that, we got a contract managing a ranch in Maui. Um, on the eastern tip of Maui and the, around the village of Hana. Anyway, yeah, so that's how Grasslands all got going. We had a lot of stuff going on. We've since kind of restructured Grasslands uh, in 2018, and and some some of those some of those those Northern Great Plains contracts ended up merging into the the management of of kind of the ranching families that we had there as the onsite managers. Um, one family in particular leases one of those ranches back from our original investor now, and that's working really good. We still custom graze cattle there with another project I have from uh, in Wyoming. And then I've got a new big project in Western Colorado, which is 
taking a lot of my time. We have, we just, we were up to about 220,000 acres there. It's mostly forest permits and BLM permits and then irrigated, irrigated farms down in the Uncle Valley. Yeah. Well, that, that's incredible. You, you, you had your experience visiting these ranches and, and seeing, or not on your business when you were doing your winter kind of off. And I guess that, uh, that wasn't quite enough to see all of them. You wanted to get in, get in and get involved, which is, uh, awesome. And, yep. Uh, maybe where we, where we kind of got into the grasslands conversation, you were talking a little bit about the management of this new property and the 200,000 plus acres mm-hmm. there. Maybe talk a little bit on that. And then I want to get into the challenges that the more of those humid, the Southeast and Hawaii type environments or some of the other things that you've seen there, yep. but uh, maybe fill, follow up on your, your thoughts on that Western great or that Western. Yeah. Western Colorado. It's, it's actually, we have, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's a mix of um, five, Forest permits. The average elevation on those permits is is probably uh, right at ten thousand feet, so they're they're real high, mm-hmm. and um, they're quite predictable in terms of their because they get so much snow. You, you know, you're always going to grow grass up there, um, but it can get really dry in the summer. And but still, you kind of bank that feed, and 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 it's very high quality forage, um, super high quality. It's excellent summer country for cattle, but they're. But they're extreme landscapes. Um, most of them are really steep. They have densely timbered areas or densely shrubby areas. Like in the lowest country we have is like 8,500 to 9,000 feet south facing slope. It's just solid oak brush. And um, so they're just, they're incredibly challenging environments to, or landscapes to manage. Uh, but the cattle, the feed is, the feed resource is just fantastic. So the cattle do really well. So that's kind of compensates the difficulty of managing them. So, so we summer cattle up there, both our cows and calves, and we retain all our calves and run them as yearlings. So we summer yearlings up in that kind of country too. And then we gather all that country in October, all the young cattle, all the wean calves and, uh, and the bread uh, replacement heifers spend the winter on our irrigated farms on stockpiled cool season perennial grass, mostly, mostly tall fescue based. And so that, that works really well. We just, a lot of that country, we don't, on the irrigated ground, we don't do any haying at all. Um, some of it, we do one cutting in the middle of summer, but mostly we just stockpile tall fescue there and take that into the winter and then strip graze that stuff off all winter with our young cattle. And then our, our cows go out to our desert permits and, and spend the winter on the desert permits, um, which is extraordinarily tough country. It's like six inch rainfall country out there in Eastern Utah, but they they do reasonably well out there. Um, It's interesting. Uh, And you can have a good spring out of that country. If you get any kind of fall and wear moisture, you get a kind of a flush of forbs in the spring. This year though, that's not happening at all. We're in extreme, exceptional drought in all that country right now. But um, so it's a learning year for sure. Those cows calve out there in March and April, and then we bring them back to the irrigated ground in in, um, May. And they spend May and June on our irrigated ground where they start to heal up. And, and so they're on a rising plane and they're gaining weight. And even though they get kind of pulled down out there in the desert, they gain weight pretty efficiently through April and May or through May and June, I should say. And then they go back to their permits in July. And, um, and that's kind of the cycle there. Mm-hmm. But that's, yeah, it's, it's uh, Western Colorado. All that country is, it's, it's excellent country for herbivores. And it, that kind of forge chain works together really well. The challenge is that most of it isn't adjacent. So you have to truck cattle all over the dang place, truck cattle from the irrigated ground up to the summer permits. And then, and then, and then 
then sure. ship out to the desert in Utah, then ship them all back to the irrigated ground and ship them all up to the summer country. So from that point of view, it's not, it's not that efficient wow. and it's, it's hard to develop a real low cost mm-hmm. production model. Also, because unlike the Northern Great Plains mm-hmm. where it's all, you know, flat or easy rolling and incredibly easy to manage relative to those mountains. So you have to have a lot of cowboys and you have to have good cowboys, guys that, guys that, you know, just comfortable living in really tough situations and comfortable negotiating really tough country. And, and you can't, you can't get by like, like Bert Tiger yeah. with, you know, 800 cows per man. We, we can't get away with that. We're, we're trying to get it to where we're, 400 cows per man, but hard okay. to do. Yeah. Well, it, and I feel like I could spend a full podcast on each one of these properties learning about their yeah, unique sure. you know, advantages and disadvantages. But that's one topic I did want to touch on is, is high, you're managing these ranches all over the country and all over the world. And maybe some have some inherited staff or labor. And, and mm-hmm. maybe that's even more challenging if you're trying to break old paradigms and ways of doing things. And, and, and others, you're probably bringing in completely new crews. How are you managing that labor side uh, as a, you know, kind of a, a ranch manager coming into a place and trying to start from scratch and a whole new way of thinking? Yeah, that's a good question. That's that's definitely been one of the the more cha- challenging, but also gratifying parts of all this. When we got mm-hmm. started in the Northern Plains, uh, the guys that were on those ranches, they you know they they moved on. Uh, in some cases, with the owners that had other ranches, they went to just stayed with them. But on some of their other properties, and so we came in with new people. But we had kind of a network of holistic management kind of minded people in that part of the world. And so we kind of drew on them and just so happened that some guys that were ready for a new opportunity, they happened to be ready right when we needed them. And so our first guy, Brandon Dalton, he's still with us. He's worked for us in South Dakota, Montana, New Zealand, and now he's in Western Colorado. And uh, so we got, we got, yeah, we got started with people that we are already ideologically aligned with up in the Northern Plains and that for the most part, and that worked really good. But in like in New Zealand, we, we indeed inherited the crew there. Uh, You know, we took on 20,000 sheep and 2000 head of cattle and a thousand deer on the day we closed. And we could not afford to not continue with the same people that were there. (laughs) And uh, so that that ended up being a a, a major transition of figuring out the right team over the course of several years. Actually, we have a great crew there now, but it it uh, it took a while for that to evolve. And uh, <clears throat> we learned a lot about what makes a good team member um, and a, a good crew member. You have to be humble and hungry and and uh, people smart to be a good team member. We really think hard about those three traits when we take on new staff now. So yeah, so that that was that was challenging, but it ended up working out really well. In Florida, we yeah, the we didn't inherit any crew there. Um, the guy that was leasing that ranch when we bought the ranch, his lease stipulated that he he had eight months to wind up his lease and get his cattle off of there after we closed. And so there was kind of a transition there where we could figure out who we wanted to run that thing. And and actually, Ron Goddard, who was our first manager at our at the Cinch Buckle in Montana. Who's a longtime HM guy going back to the 80s? He decided he wanted to take on the f- challenge of Florida kind of in late career. So he moved from Montana, <laughs> Eastern Montana, to the peninsula of Florida with his whole family. And so his whole family and a couple other employees wow. managed that operation. And uh, then in Western Colorado, my, my head manager there is, is a guy named Tyler Westhoff who um, has kind of been in our circles for a long time. He worked for Greg Judy. He went to South Africa, worked for Ian Mitchell Ennis. 
And, um, and so we, we knew about him and, and we hired him to manage that uh, Hawaii project. And so we worked with him there for a couple of years while that, while we had that contract. And then that contract finished up and he, we didn't have another spot for him right then. And he moved back to Eastern Utah where he's from and uh, was working there, but I knew he wasn't very happy. And when this opportunity came up, I called him up and said, Hey Tyler, I, if you're looking for a job, I think I might have something pretty cool. So anyways, that ended up working out. So he's our manager there now. So in, in many ways, it's just kind of, we've kept our management positions within our kind of circle of really, you know, trusted, um, proven people, and then sure. try to be really conscious about the the rest of the staff that we hire on that, that big, the biggest thing is you got to have people that don't create drama. You can, you can, you can lose a huge amount of, spend a huge amount of energy dealing with inner human drama. That's a big part of the humility and the people smart part of, of being a good team member that usually people that are humble and people smart don't create drama. Okay. Well, I, that's impressive that you've managed to find a way to overcome those challenges in all these different places and stuff. And I kind of want to shift gears slightly out of the actual management and get your perspective from almost a business and opportunity side and in, in ranching as you see it now. You have a unique perspective looking at valuing lands in certain areas and finding the undervalued land. I'm curious what your perspective is on is land and, and ranching still a enterprise for people? Is there still opportunity for people trying to get into this business? And obviously you're coming in at a level that many individuals may not be be capable of, but where are the opportunities? I've always thought, you know, it's easy to say there's no opportunity if you look within 20 miles of where you're from, but if you're willing to move, there's a lot of opportunity out there in this country, in this world. Yeah. And curious from your perspective where those opportunities might be yeah you know i think there definitely are opportunities it's <clears throat> there really hasn't been the opportunity since i've been in ranching for the last you know 30 years um to at least in in most environments to go in and buy your own property and buy your own ranch and buy your own cattle it's just too capital intensive um and so mm-hmm. But you can get into ranching by running other people's cattle on other people's land. And there's a lot of demand for that out there, opportunity in that in that space. You know, so as you know, just land prices, I don't I don't know. I can't I'm not an economist, but it just seems to me like the greater wealth gets concentrated in this country and people need a, a place to store capital. That's that's continuing mm-hmm. to create upward pressure on land prices. And so. You know, the people that want to live in these environments and then know how to live there and know how to manage them. And, and uh, they, for the most part, they can't they can't afford them. And so but that's not necessarily a bad thing. And that's kind of what I decided I had to kind of capitalize on that and work working with landowners that needed management. And so I did that by virtue of this, these ranches that we leased for a long time in Colorado. And then then we decided to go out and try to explicitly try to do that, go out and find the landscapes that made sense from a commercial ranching point of view, find investors that wanted to buy them. And then we would engage in long-term management contracts that uh, if we can make them work, we have a, a piece of, you know, we get a, we have a profit share agreement with those guys. We get a set management fee, but then an incentive fee if we're profitable above a certain hurdle rate of return. So everybody's aligned and the, the, our investors for the most part, are absentee. They're interested in what's going on there, but they're, they've got lots of other things going on in their lives and they just, they just don't have time to come out to the ranches hardly ever, if ever. And so, so they're basically our, our ranches. We see them as our ranches and we have total autonomy out there to do what we, 
we have to submit quarterly reports and come up with, you know, very, very detailed budgets that we go through with them every year. But then it's up to us to execute. And so there's there's opportunities to work with absentee landowners. I would say that's the biggest thing. But but before you can really do that in incredible or in a way that, you know, that has a chance of success, you really have to learn a lot. And mostly by getting out and working for other folks and 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 getting your hands dirty and spending multiple years on a on well-managed ranches and learning the trade to give you the kind of the skills and the, and then the credibility that you'll need as you approach landowners. And then you have to just get out and beat the bushes and be, a, you know, aggressive and forthright and confident to find those opportunities. But there are, there's a lot of grass that needs manage, manage it out there. And a lot of people that need that management, many of which aren't conscious mm-hmm. that they need it. So yeah, there's, there's always going to be a, a need for, grass management and livestock management, which is different from grass or land ownership or livestock ownership. I don't know if that answered your question, but that that's the state of the world now. And that's just yeah. the reality. And if you're not if you're yeah. not born into it, don't have an asset in your own family, those are the kind of opportunities you need to look for. And if you're if you're like entrepreneurial minded and, and independent, <clears throat> have kind of an independent streak definitely you can merge into the into a kind of thing like like I'm doing or and have been doing for a long time but if you you know there's a lot of opportunities to be and you know employees at a management level with a huge amount of autonomy working for big diverse incredibly interesting operations that need really professional really good people so there's there's niches in that on that side of it too well, that's a great perspective. And I wanted to hear your perspective kind of coming from a different side of ranching and, and what you see the opportunities and the biggest opportunities being. So I appreciate you sharing that. I wish I, I want to respect your time. So I don't want to get too much more into some of the other properties yet. At, at this point, we might have to have you come back on to talk about them in the future. But I, I do want to give you the opportunity to plug your book, talk about that a little bit, because it, it really is a, a great book. I, I I've read that as well, and maybe talk a little bit about oh, that and anything else you might want to share with our listeners. Yeah, that book, that happened because we had a, well, partly, it's mostly a compilation of, of essays or articles that I wrote for years for HMI, you know, that were about mm-hmm. the touring, the travel that we did around the world and my own direct ranching experience there in Colorado. And, um, and then a lot of the stuff I was learning from my consulting clients. So simultaneous to doing, managing our ranch there in Western Colorado, I was doing a lot of consulting work from Montana to the Gulf coast. And so I had a bunch of clients in lots of different environments. And so I, a lot of that was material to write about also. So in, uh, in 2007 and eight, my wife and I, we almost pulled off a ranch investment project in Patagonia and Chile. And uh, but the financial crisis hit, and our investors that were going to do that pulled out on us at the last second before we were going to close on these properties in this ridiculous valley in Patagonia and Chile. <laughs> and um, so I had I was going to that's what I was going to go do, and uh, for half the year, and then we were going to go from yeah. Colorado half the year in Colorado, half the year in Ch- in Chile. Um, so that that thing fell over, and wow. and. Um, when the subprime mortgage crisis started raising its head in late 2007, early 2008. And so that's what I was going to do that winter. We didn't have any of our ranch tours lined up. And I said, I should, mm. I should compile some of what I deemed to be my better literary efforts into a book. And so that's what I did that winter was put it all those together. I realized you could self-publish. So <laughs> Amazon has a subsidiary, a self-publishing subsidiary. And so and it, and it's if you don't if you don't mm-hmm. 
hire their very expensive editing service. I feel like I felt like I didn't need that. It's actually pretty inexpensive to do. So that's how the book came about. And um, it was I finished up in, in uh, September of 2009. So it's it's kind of split into a variety of topics. It's, it's called For the Love of Land, Global Case Studies of Grazing in Nature's Image. So it, 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 it starts out with a bunch of the kind of the natural history stuff that I've touched on here kind of going back to the Pleistocene, but also really looking into how these native herbivores interacted with, with these different types of brutal environments. And then it, and then there's uh, kind of a bunch of nuts and bolts on holistic plant grazing and, and stories from our operation, as well as my consulting clients. And then there's, and then it kind of goes into a, uh, a bunch of the different geographies that we traveled in. So there's an Australian section and then you know, Southern Africa section, Mexico, Argentina, et cetera. So that, that's kind of how it's split. You, you can just dive into whatever chapter strikes your fancy. It's not like you have to read it front to back. Yeah. And I, I love it for a guy born in Southeast Minnesota. I've always kind of felt I was a cowboy born in the wrong state <laughs> and cr- corn and soybean country. So it's, it's a great book for me to be able to like, just almost you know dive into these other worlds these other ranching industries and, and environments and experience it from your perspective and so i really appreciate you you putting that together and kind of a funny story on the, on the the book i was actually reading it at my in-laws family vacation and i was reading through it and my brother-in-law and his wife live in the cities and not so much of an egg background and eventually he got up the nerve to say what's that book about and i told him oh, it's about like the all these ranches out west and all over the country and everything and stuff he's like oh thank god i thought you were reading a western romance novel or something and i <laughs> for the love of land <laughs> and so i uh but once he heard that it was it made a lot more sense and i've always liked the 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 content it was great but it was just kind of a yeah that's funny, funny story I guess it about does that kind of sound like a western romance novel <laughs> for a perspective of a person who doesn't read egg-based yeah. books and maybe doesn't even recognize that there are full books on, right. <laughs> on farming and ranching yeah but, or, or how the yeah, concept that is... you can actually love land you know so yes yes great point great point yeah no it was great but uh, is there anything else you want to plug or, or if people want to reach out or learn more about what you're doing, uh, where would you direct them? Um, we, they could go to our grasslands website and write us an email there. And I'd try to get back to most of those. Um, that's a, that's the quickest, most direct way to get a, get in touch with me. But, well, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, you bet Jared. And uh, I'd be happy to do another one, talk more detail about Florida or New Zealand. There's all kinds of interesting tidbits. That'd be great. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Faro Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Faro Cattle Company at farocattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.